All right, hello and welcome to the Nomi Key Show. I am Nomi Key Konst. It has been one hell of a week since election day. So why didn't all that energy take us further? I'll give you one answer. The Democratic Party is broken, the DNC. It is the wrong machine for this moment. And it is a machine, it is a cash machine for technocratic consultants to make profits. A tool to launder corporate money to buy TV ads and fifth vacation homes. Maybe this was an okay look for the roaring Clinton era, but it is not what we need right now. Down ballot was a disaster. And it isn't because progressives hurt the party. It is because the party has no message, no local roots, and no organizing ability. Progressive candidates won, even in swing districts and Republican districts. Progressive messages like the minimum wage won in red states like Florida. One, you know, open Medicare for all supporters, they won. The problem isn't progressives. The problem is the Democratic Party. Mr. President-elect, you can have a huge impact on American politics by rebuilding the Democratic Party. You can have a huge impact on your own legacy by creating a party that will win. Frankly, I'm not even sure you have a choice. You need a Congress to work with. So if you want a winning party, which I think you do, and that may separate you from those folks who think of money first, but if you want to win and have a Congress who will help you get this country out of this economic disaster, who will help you make amends for the mistakes of the Obama recovery in 2008, who will help you be seen through the lens of history as a president who rose to the moment, then we have to win down ballot. Senator Doug Jones, not quite a progressive, said it right after losing his race for re-election in Alabama to a football coach. The Democratic Party campaign committees, the DCCC and the Democratic Senate campaign committee, they must change their mission. Doug Jones put it this way, we need to invest in the electorate, not just in candidates. The party doesn't invest in house districts. They don't invest in states. They invest in television ads for the candidates running every few years, often bland, wealthy candidates, might I add. Senator Jones said the party spends too much time and money, I would add, investing in those candidates. Senator Jones, welcome to every one of my favorite TED Talks. <laughs> Let's barnstorm the country together with this message. Think about it this way. When you have a crucial decision to make, buying a car, taking a job, moving to a new home, who are you more likely to listen to? Someone who shows up the day before to say, you will love that car. Or the friend who has always been there with you, riding in that old Chevy. Well, the Democratic Party keeps showing up around election time and saying, vote for us. Instead of being there on the ground all the time, building the support and the loyalty and field operations for moment li moments like the ones we just have been through. The Democratic Party's helicopter po politics has not worked. They won't ever work. We need to change. The party needs to be gutted of corporate interests and Clintonian insider deal-making. The stuff that at best takes our eye from the prize and at worst is downright corrupt as I famously said on C-SPAN during the Unity Reform Commission, it's effing corrupt. Our challenges are too big right now. We can't afford personal aggrandizement, vendettas or plain old profiteering. If Goldman Sachs can ban conflicts of interest on their board, then the Democratic Party surely can too. So kick the lobbyists and consultants out. They should not be voting on anything and bring the working people back in. We need a small case Democratic Party, small D Democratic Party, determined to win every election. A Democratic Party that isn't influenced by voices who have another agenda, an agenda to keep populists out. To make money on elections, whether we win or lose, that's their agenda. We need a 50 state party, a block by block party that has the tools and the muscle and the boots on the ground to fight for every state legislative seat, for every congressional seat in hard places, for every mayor and county commissioner and governor, and of course, for every Senate seat, starting with the two right now in Georgia. But not just come election time, all the time, so that there are activists learning how to organize to win in off years. So there's a message that voters trust when the ads aren't up. When the Democrats are not present, the right wing smells the void and they take that opportunity. Many voters, many of you, you're turned off by parties and I understand because they have been vessels for hacks and influence peddling and money grubbing schemes. 
And you're right, of course, we don't need that kind of political party, but we do need a political party that serves as a unifying force at all seasons. We need a vibrant party that embraces its progressive power rather than treating progressives like a threat. We are not why the party isn't winning. The party lost thousands of seats way before we became a force. The party isn't winning because it isn't built to win. As you say, Mr. President-elect, I am speaking to you, we need to build the party back better. And building back better means building back labor. The Democratic Party's ambivalence about labor is our Achilles heel. Thomas Frank famously wrote in Listen Liberal that there was a conscious move by Bill Clinton and his pals in the early 80s to rid unions from the party. Biden was eloquent this weekend about unity. Joe, you know, he ran as this working class guy. Well, this needs to be more than a commercial, a, a fancy commercial, a shiny commercial. Labor is the unifying force. Labor brings white working people who supported Trump together with working people of color who powered Biden in one movement for economic justice. That's what this is all about. Labor speaks more for working people of color than any other force in the movement for racial justice. In the 60s and, and more than ever today, we, we recall what happened with those marches. Labor was that force. Labor represents frontline workers, the ones hardest hit by this pandemic. Economic justice and racial justice have always been one in this country, a goal to strive for just around the bend of that long moral arc. The DNC should be at the heart of this fight and it can be. A rebuilt Democratic Party will welcome labor back the way it was. The Biden administration promises to rebuild labor's legal rights to organize at the workplace and labor can partner with the Democratic Party to rebuild its capacity to win elections. They're amazing organizers, aren't they? That, as they say, is a win-win. And the biggest win of all will be for working people. Let me sum, sum this up with my three points for rebuilding the Democratic Party. Point number one, ban the conflicts of interest. If you want to cash in your political experience to make money repping weapons manufacturers, well, best of luck to you. Let's have lunch sometime. I'd love to hear how you do that. <laughs> but you have to give up your leadership role inside the party. You didn't run for party positions. You were appointed to them. And you shouldn't have more of a, of a say than those who ran at the local level. Get rid of the consultants and the lobbies now, period. They should have no oversight over the party. Point number two, bring back labor. Have a guaranteed number of seats for workers and their representatives. It used to be that way. The New Deal coalition was built on labor. That industrial labor movement isn't what it used to be, but there is a new labor rising. Hospital workers, teachers, flight attendants, domestic workers, gig workers. We help them build back a better labor movement and they help us build back a better party and we win elections. Point number three, build the state parties. They are not perfect either. They need cleaning up too, but they are the base for organizing. We have to live, breathe, and teach organizing 24-7. The unions will help because that's what they know how to do. But we can't rely just on their sweat. We have to teach everyone who wants to move this country that the work starts at the bottom of the ballot. Every vote counts, and every election counts, and every voter counts. I'm going to keep coming back to this because without it, we can't get the rest done. This is so important. And welcome to my TED Talk, Mr. Doug Jones. All right, we have a great show for you today. Uh, we're starting off talking about a populist guide to capitalism with Hadass Thier, and then later we're joined by Napoleon de Legend and Joshua Khan Russell. But first, here is what is at the top of my newsfeed. On a recent Fox News segment, I took on the idea that AOC wants to cancel members of the GOP who have enabled Trump and played a key role in his administration. We're going to talk about that a little bit later. It's a little bit of a teaser, uh, but you know, this was a big piece of news that the Republicans and conservatives are going after AOC, saying that she's going to cancel anybody who worked with the Trump administration. Uh, if that's what they're focusing on right now, I think that they're in deeper trouble. <laughs> so stay tuned for that. For that. We're going to talk about that with Joshua Khan Russell and Napoleon the Legend. Uh, you know what? I'm going to go straight to our next segment because we're running a little tight on time here. So let's go to Adas Seal. We'll take a quick break and come back with her.
Welcome back to the Nomi Key Show. Hadas Thier is the author of A People's Guide to Capitalism. She is a member of DSA. She contributes to a frequent contributor to Jacobin Magazine. And uh, this is, I think, the perfect conversation to have as we are uh, about to be dealing with a very uh, capitalist uh, Democratic Party that we have to influence. Hadas, thanks for joining today. Sure. Thank you so much for having me. So we've seen, you know, a populist guide to socialism, populist guide, you know, uh, an anti-capitalist guide to socialism, you know, all these different uh, perspectives. But what, what inspired you to write this book on capitalism for populists? Well, my main thinking really is that I, I think the economy has to be in the hands of the people, right? Um, that ultimately that's our main goal. That's the vision of how we can make really fundamental change, uh, that the machinations of the economy so far have been left up to the so-called experts and that has gone terribly wrong for uh as long for as long as uh as as capitalism goes back and uh it needs to be in the hands of the people but in order for that to take place in order for us to be able to make the kind of demands that we need to make to organize our side properly ultimately to overturn the way that the economy works we have to understand it and um i think systematically we've been told, uh, especially, you know, depending on what, you know, constituencies uh, you fall under, but especially working people, women, people of color um, have been told that this is something that is beyond our reach, that it's too complicated for us to understand. And if it seems off, you know, then maybe that's just something wrong with us. Uh, And in reality, um, we actually have a much better understanding of how things work because we, we live it. Uh, and, um, and, but we have to, we have to like really drill down and understand uh, what are the ways, what, what are the things that make capitalism tick? What are the contradictions that make it go into crisis? What are the contradictions that can be, um, you know, that we can take advantage of to try to push through on? Uh, and that's really, I think the role of uh, of, of Marxism and Marxist economics is to really understand the system in order to change it. Um, yeah, I mean, that, that's one of the things that I think is, I, I, I don't hear enough of right now is Marx had a complete understanding that we lived in a capitalist and he wasn't necessarily opposed to capitalism. It was just through what lens. I mean, that's my reading of it. Um, but I think like there's this calling out the enemy in the last few years, which is extremely important, right? We need to understand that capitalism is broken before we start to, to break it down. Um, and I, you know, and, and it would be interesting to kind of go back and look at 2008, right? In 2008, um, Obama, his way of, of, of fixing the economy was, was from the top down. It wasn't from the bottom up. It was very much like the Larry Summerses of the world and, and, and we know how, how that went. Um, it protected the Wall Street class. It protected the executives. It protected the big banks. Um, and of course, you know, millions of Americans, uh, you know, suffered as a result. So if you're looking at this economic crisis and, and say working class Joe puts on his working class hat and it doesn't look like he's doing that with this transition <laughs> team, but let's just pretend for a second he's doing that. Um, how would you advise uh, the president to learn from the mistakes of 2008 and 2009 and, and really stand for working class uh, right now? Right. Well, the first thing that absolutely has to happen is that we need, we need relief. You know, the stimulus negotiations that broke down in the summer, um, you know, have left literally tens of millions of people without uh, the kind of unemployment benefits to weather the storm without the stimulus checks, without the moratorium on housing evictions. Um, you know, these are the things that are absolutely desperately needed. And so far they've been basically used as a political football, uh, really by both parties, which um, I think is, is an outrage. And that's the, th- the thing that needs to happen right out of the gate is that we need relief and we need it badly. Um, we need to, um, you know, basically the way that this crisis has been handled or not handled, I should say, uh, is that either, you know, we go under complete lockdown, um, which health wise is necessary, but people aren't given the kind of financial supports to make that possible. Um, 
or we pry open the states, um, which is obviously what Trump and the Republicans have been advocates for um, in order to get people back to work. But it's left people in, you know, between a rock and a hard place. And so no wonder actually Trump's um, um, strategies have been, you know, that there's been an audience for it because people want to get back to life as it as you know as as normal as possibly as 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 possible, um, because the the option has been either lockdown and no jobs, versus no lockdown and get back to your job, and that's just not, you know, that's not a possible uh, option. So if we actually want to solve this crisis, it is a health crisis, uh, but it needs to be funded. <laughs> And people need to be able to have enough money to stay home safely. Um, that's the bare minimum. Um, and then, you know, there's, there's other things that flow from that. I mean, is, is so much of this is, I, I think there's this, this juxtaposition, right? There's this, um, it's almost like they, 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 because we're such a Wall Street driven economy, like from their perspective, right? Consumer based economy. There's this, okay, well, we need to artificially inflate Wall Street. So there's this illusion that the economy is great. And then that's going to create this illusion that like people can spend their money. Um, and then, but then the other side, and, that, and there's this illusion that we need to rebuild our economy by keeping, keeping everything open when you're saying, well, honestly, if we just were to make sure that people could pay their rent and could take care of themselves and it actually would affect the rest of those things. Am right. I understanding that correctly? Right. Exactly. I mean, if if we if the if the entire motive of society wasn't just profits and like you said keeping Wall Street happy, then you would cancel rent and moratorium for as long as the pandemic is ongoing, and then you would send people monthly checks uh, that you know a number of progressives have been calling for for a long time, two thousand dollars a month, um, and you know you would give people the the uh, financial supports and the, uh, and the social supports and so on to, to stay home while, you know, and then, and then information, you know, I mean, it's obviously with Trump in office, we've had the opposite of information, but we, we need a national education campaign around vaccines, for instance, um, that's going to be a critical piece. Uh, but this, but the problem is, is that our system doesn't know how to solve health problems. It knows how to solve economic problems and it barely knows how to solve econ right. economic problems. But, um, and, and when I say economic problems, I mean, like you're saying the profits um, of, of, uh, of corporations and, and Wall Street and, and the stock market and so on. That, that's what the system was able to do very quickly. You know, the, fe the Federal Reserve is pumping trillions of dollars. You know, there's all these debates happening in Congress about the, about the stimulus bills. Meanwhile, the Federal Reserve without any oversight, without any you know, uh, democratic accountability just is pumping trillions of dollars into the financial markets. And that they were able to do right away. And yet to actually, you know, provide things like masks, basic things that we need, masks, ventilators, uh, the, the equipment that's needed to fight this pandemic, the system is completely unable to do that. It sent states into bidding wars with each other. I mean, that's right. the, 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 the way that the market works. Um, I mean, it's actually crazy that like you you have this supposedly like democratic leaders bidding with other states. Um, that's not how the, this was supposed to be set up by any means. All right, so so Joe Biden has to come up with something like big and bold, ma mainly just for for his own legacy. That's like I'm just looking at it through the lens of okay, Joe Biden does not want to after several times running for president, he doesn't want to inherit this moment uh, and and really you know. Stuff like like the way that Obama did. He didn't. I think that the verdict came in for Obama. It was like a slow verdict. I think you know activists really knew. Um, folks organizing around the fifteen dollar minimum wage knew. Folks in Wisconsin uh, who were fighting and, and were waiting for Obama to to lace up his boots and and show up on the ground. They knew. But it was like a sliding awareness. And I think folks are still starting to understand that like the economic recovery was not what they thought it was supposed to be. But Joe Biden's not going to be awarded that luxury at all. No. So should, what, what should he do day one? Like if he had like five things, 
Yeah. Well, so let me just say one thing, first of all, which is that Joe Biden, unlike Obama, Obama ran on, you know, on change and hope. And yes, we can. Joe Biden ran on I'm not Donald Trump. And that was the the beginning and end of his campaign. And <laughs> so it's going to be very difficult. I, it's, it's difficult to imagine him going bold and aggressive when, you know, historically, the way it usually works, right, is that candidates make a lot of big promises, and then they break them when they're in office. But there are no promises to be broken here. He's barely made any promises, really. I mean, um, a, a, a few here and there that he um, hasn't even really talked about that much. So for instance, a $15 minimum wage, he's he, he was on record for supporting it, which is great. Although at this point, it needs to be more like a $22 minimum wage. But okay, we'll start with 15 um, but he he didn't campaign on $15 minimum wage. And so we have this absurd situation where you have voters in Florida voting, rightly so, for a $15 minimum wage, but also voting for Trump. And the majority, you know, when the exit polls show that actually the majority of people that saw the economy as their number one issue actually voted for Trump and, and, and thought that he was handling the economy well. I mean, that's historically unprecedented, you know. But the Democrats have been completely unable to make hay of um, of this economic crisis and the, and the mishandling of it. So it's hard to imagine. However, I think you're right that it kind of behooves us as the left to have our understanding of what needs to happen um, and to try to push for that on day one and in the lead up to day one. Um, so, you know, so I, I think, you know, if we're talking five things you know, it, it's it's the what I was saying before about a relief bill that needs to happen just um, at, right out of the gate. Um, and so which of those things can happen by executive order and which of those things have to happen um, through, um, you know, through fight, fighting for it, uh, which is going to be challenging given the state of, you know, what the Senate will look like. Um, but there needs to be a robust uh, relief package that looks very much like the CARES Act, although there's a lot of stuff that was in there that was not so good, but it, we need to, to maintain the things that were good. Um, we need uh, $2,000 instead of $1,200, say stimulus bills, instead of a one-off thing, it should go out every month. We need um, to extend unemployment benefits back to $600, extra $600 a month from the federal government. Uh, we need a federal moratorium on rent and uh, and um, and eviction and and mortgage uh, payments and evictions. Um, th those would be the the top things. Um, in addition to that, I think there needs to be money that goes, whether it's uh, made available through the Federal Reserve uh, or otherwise, that needs to be made available to state budgets. ASAP. Um, our right. state budgets are tanking right now. Why is that? Because there isn't revenue being generated, right? Because companies have shut down. Um, some of them have reopened. Some of them have not been able to reopen. But the re but states have lost a tremendous amount of revenue um, and are already uh, enacting severe budget cuts. So it's we're in this absurd situation where, in the middle of a pandemic, actually, you know healthcare budgets are being slashed and hospitals are there, you know, are enacting um, layoffs in hospitals during a pandemic. Um, and this goes back to the complete inability of capitalism to deal with a health crisis. Um, so budgets need, uh, state budgets need money ASAP. That's the other thing that is necessary. Uh, and we need to both for the sake of the current crisis and the pandemic and for the sake of our overall you know, the overall public good, um, education and healthcare needs to be refunded. And that's obviously a problem that goes back much further than this pandemic and much further than Donald Trump and has been a bipartisan attack um, that has left us completely vulnerable uh, to, to this pandemic. So, you know, some have, I mean, this is, this is even made it into like the Wall Street Journal or in Financial Times and like the IMF has sort of even alluded to this which is mind blowing, but it just shows you how severe the crisis at this moment is. And, and all of those places are not beholden to like lobbyists and donors too. So they've have a little bit more freedom to say what we've all known for a long time that neoliberalism is dead. And 
you can't get your way out of this through incrementalism. You can't solve the education crisis by uh, having charter schools. I mean, we know that there's no way. I think Biden even knows that at this point, that it's just, it's just run its course and it's created the pathway for uh, Donald Trump. And of course, a horrible crisis, which could come in. You know, it, that's the thing is like leaders have to be aware that at any moment, a crisis could come in any moment, something, an earthquake, a meteor, a health, a pandemic, whatever, a war. Um, and then that's what you have to prepare for is, is, it's just, just like, you know, a household being able to prepare for the worst crisis that, that could hit them. Mm-hmm. Um, but you, you know, you wrote this book, People's Guide to Capitalism. And I, I'm, I'm very curious, like, if there was a way to, I guess, message to like normie voters, mm-hmm. <laughs> the, the people who may not even know what neoliberalism is, but think that they're the, the, the Democratic uh, headliners are going to solve this problem. How would you message like the, the basic the basic points of your book to the normie voter? OK, <laughs> good question. Um, well, I would say just first of all, that one thing that has been clear, um, I think it's been clear for for a bunch of years, but certainly with this last election um, and the exit polls show it that idea like socialist principles um, and socialistic principles are are quite um, are quite popular. You know that things like minimum wage, taxing the rich, uh, more money for education. Uh, these are the things that uh, have won referendums in both blue states and red states, blue counties and red counties. So I think first of all, that's one thing that we have to say is that the idea that. Um, left-wing ideas are somehow, um, you know, uh, can't, can't resonate with people um, in middle America or wherever, I think is false. And I think Ber- this, the, the popularity of Bernie's campaign showed that. And I think um, the, the popularity and the growth of AOC and the squad and so on, um, I think also point to that. Um, and I think, you know, uh, AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, like recently has been talking about that, about how all the, in swing states, the same um, senators that vote that actually uh, were in favor of Medicare for all won their elections and those that weren't didn't. So I think this whole idea that, and, and Fox News had these, these polls that they um, oh, yeah. reported on themselves, you know, that the majority of people want national health care. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> Even uh, Fox News has to read these polls. So I think that's the first thing to say is that actually, um, you know, basic socialistic ideas, I think, can resonate quite widely. I think in terms of um, my book and why, you know, why talk about capitalism and why have a socialist lens, um, the way that I would explain it uh, to most people is that look, our system isn't, isn't working, you know? And I think that most people agree that it isn't working, that a society where um, the leading cause of death among young children is hunger, even though the world produces enough food to feed the entire world over and then some, that's a sick society. A society that lets children die on a mass scale is not an advanced society. You know, I'm sorry, it's a failure. Um, and, you know, I think in the United States, we see how um, the pursuit of profit versus the pursuit of health and lives run completely counter to each other. That's been exposed, obviously, completely by the pandemic and how that has been handled. But, you know, down the line, the U.S. is the number one um, emitter of carbon uh, dioxide, the number one um, spender for military expenditures, um, has the number one um, you know, the greatest wealth and income inequality in the in, in advanced economies. Um, and then at the same time, it's number 43, I believe, in terms of life expectancy. So that gives you a picture of, right, the top capitalist society in the world, uh, the top superpower of, uh, for both, cap- you know, for capitalist economy and for military, et cetera, also happens to be you know, at the bottom of the list when it, when it comes to health outcomes and life outcomes, you know, obviously we're at the, we're at the top of the list for COVID uh, deaths, um, you know, and that's not a coincidence. That is, 
the makings of neoliberal capitalism. Um, it's interesting. I, I, I was talking to a friend of mine who was visiting the United States for the first time last year, and he was really from Europe. Um, and he was really struck by just the, the level of wealth. I mean, he could see, he saw the inequality on the streets of New York and was ju- it just blew his mind that, and everybody was just kind of on top of each other. It's not like you have, you know, the wealthy in one area, for those of you who don't live in New York, uh, you're just immersed with everybody all the time. And, um, and he, he couldn't understand, he says, well, you have so much democracy, you have so much this, you have so much that, is democracy failing? And I said, well, no, 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 we're, we're, we are a capitalist country first and then democracy. And we use our democracy to kind of, enable different capitalist forces, but we're also a consumer base. So when someone gets sick, there's money to be made. Mm-hmm. And he, he, go, he didn't understand, like it, it, was, it was fascinating to see a European who clearly they have capitalism in Europe um, and neoliberalism, uh, see, not just that little switch of understanding that when someone suffers in, in the US, there's money to be made. And it's not to that extent in Europe, it does exist clearly, but not to that extent, so. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, you know, that's the thing. And we were were saying earlier about how the mark, what the market did in relation to COVID, it's like, in theory, the way that the the best part of capitalism is supposed to be that it can at least deliver the goods, right? It's like the market is supposed to be in tune to what we want, et cetera. Um, but that's actually not what the market is for. The market is, is for delivering profits. Um, and at any expense. So, you know, the masks weren't, um, weren't available. However, mask makers made a lot of money. I mean, they, the, the, the price of masks uh, septupled, I think is, I don't know how you say it, seven times um, what the normal rate is. I mean, that's insane. That should be illegal. The idea that you can profiteer off of a pandemic is insane. I think it is illegal, actually, <laughs> and oh, and I'm hoping that there is some sort of investigation um, that comes out of this, you know, on the other side. But we can only hope. Uh, Hadas, fascinating conversation. Uh, check out Hadas's book. Uh, it is at Haymarket. I recommend you you buy it there. Uh, it is a People's Guide to Capitalism. She is also a frequent contributor contributor to uh, Jacobin and active at DSA, a New Yorker like myself. Uh, thank you for joining us. Thank you Hope so much. Hope to have much. you on again soon. I'm, there's, I'm sure there's tons to talk about. So. Great. Thanks, Maliki. Welcome back. We have Napoleon the Legend back. He is an Afrobeat hip hop artist and activist. And of course, Joshua Khan Russell. He is a campaign strategist, a nonviolent direct action coordinator. And he is working on this project right now uh, to stop the coups. So I want to start off just by going straight to you, Joshua. Um, we have some other stuff we want to touch too. So I know this show is running a little late today. I apologize, guys. But let's go with what is the state of the coup? We've got, we, I mean, I thought there was no coup. We thought there was a coup, then there's no coup. And, <laughs> and then everything was going in the way that we all thought was going to happen. The, the ballots were delayed. He doesn't accept the results. Mitch McConnell doesn't re- accept the results. He fires defense secretary. What is he going to do? Storm the streets? I'm so confused. Where are we? <laughs> there's a lot going on. Um, and <laughs> so, you know, we, we always knew this guy wasn't going to concede, right? And I, I mean, I'm not sure that Trump is even psychologically able to concede. That doesn't constitute a coup. I get why all the moves that the Trump administration is making um, to fight this out might seem scary because they're just like, they're throwing a lot of stuff against the wall. But to us at Choose Democracy, it looks more like, a, you know, like trying to make a Hail Mary pass like after the game is over. It's outrageous. It does have political and material consequences, but it's not a coup. It's just not it's not a coup. They can't they're not going to pull that off. A coup is a seizure of power backed by force or the threat of force. And they did put all the pieces in place to attempt that we were right to prepare for it. I can give lots of examples of how our organizing helped avert that. Um, We're really proud of our work. But for now, there's no seizure of control. There is nothing outside of judicial fighting and PR. And if you want to quickly go through the list, because you named a few things. So there's like the head of the General Securities Administration is refusing to authorize money and infrastructure to the transition team. The um, 
What else? The Pennsylvania House GOP is asking the Democratic governor to have an audit of the election. Bill Barr is authorizing the DOJ to look at allegations of fraud. Uh, top, the top DOJ official in charge of elections crimes resigned. Mitch McConnell and Pompeo are being enablers. Defense Secretary Mark Esper was fired. Uh, there's new lawsuits in Pennsylvania and Michigan uh, to try to get states to throw out the election results. It seems like a lot. It really does seem like a lot, but any of these moves are actually pretty inconsequential in themselves in terms of seizing power. And they're not really the moves you would make if you were trying to make a coup happen. Well, the the PA house letter, yeah. Hang on one second, just because like, Mm -hmm. you know, and and Napoleon, you know about coups too. So feel free to chime in. Um, Cause he's like, I know coups, I was raised around coups. (laughs) But (laughs) we've got a native coup. (laughs) <laughs> Native no, but you, you know, the, now that you say that in, in the islands, the first thing that 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 the mercenaries would take when Bob Denard came to do cruise and, and Comoros was the radio station. They would take the means of right. communication. I don't see how this is going to happen over here. You know what I'm saying? That that's I mean that's that's perfect. Fox News has been saying no, no, no. We called the election. We called the election. We called the election because it's it's a bet for them too. I mean they've got shareholders and other folks controlling um, Fox News, not just. Uh, uh, the Murdochs. But, uh, you know, just going back to that point, because he fires the defense secretary. And to me, uh, it, it fires him because he wouldn't take the military, active military on the streets during the George Floyd protests, which makes me feel like that's kind of what he's doing as we're seeing a, an enhanced police presence in New York and other cities. How is that not coup like? Well, that's why it's scary. I mean, it is coup like. I mean, it's it's meant to show his base. It's but okay. So it's it it is meant to show his base that he's really serious, right? But Mark Esper knew he was getting fired before all of this, you know. And so there's a, like the the idea that that means they're gearing up to have the military intervene in some kind of way. Like I'm just not seeing that. And and all the other things we listed, like. We can go through the list there too. Like as of yesterday, Trump was zero to five on election fraud cases. Um, the that PA House letter uh, is bluster. It doesn't even ask Governor Wolf to change the outcome, which he wouldn't do anyway. Um, the GSA thing is is huge for other reasons, like the coronavirus response, but not for not for this. Uh, Bill Barr. Are further politicizing the DOJ is frustrating, but our understanding is that sure, you know, federal prosecutors can investigate and charge people who commit voter fraud, but they can't decide if ballots can be counted, right? right. Um, and so our read on this is that like they're doing this for a few reasons. One, they're trying to create a narrative where Trump can be aggrieved and complain that it was stolen from him for the next four years or the rest of his life or whatever. They can keep fundraising off his base to pay down his campaign debts by uh, trying to fleece his supporters into like putting up this resistance. They can rile people up for the turnout for the Georgia runoffs. Uh, they can create leverage for pushing the incoming administration to, uh, for things in return for a ceasefire. So it's it makes sense why they're doing all of this, um, but I don't think their end game is actually a seizure of power. No matter what Trump thinks, like the red lines that we've been organizing <laughs> he, he around. Think so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And sure, so, Trump you know, has, it's a coup. It's a coup. Oh, sorry. You have to leave now. Bye. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So at Choose Democracy, we, we've been really clear around like what what were, would be the red lines that would constitute a coup. And we're really excited. You know, so an example of success where they did try to set up infrastructure that would be uh, materially coup-like would be when shortly before the election in Pennsylvania, the House GOP tried to set up what was they called the Election Integrity Commission, which had the power to seize uncounted ballots. That was literally setting up the infrastructure to stop the counting of votes. And we were like, this is coup behavior. This is structurally a way that they could seize power. And it was the result of grassroots organizing going after, um, like literally activists on the ground, fight back PA and others, mobilizing people to target swing state Republican moderates in Bucks County and Chester County, right when this thing got announced. And they scuttled it. They were like, we can't do it was the result of that pressure and that's just one example of tons of work from anti-coup organizing that happens to set the stage to get here where all they have is to just throw all this stuff which is basically a pr move uh for other reasons so i think we should feel successful in that work we should still feel outraged at at the consequence for democracy that all this is happening i'm not saying that it's it's yeah. not an outrage and i'm not saying it doesn't have terrible consequences for us i'm just saying that it's not it's not a coup um, Napoleon, uh, what, what have you witnessed when, when, when seeing a coup well, the, the, <laughs> take the, hold? The, the, the typical things that, that 
like what I said, first off, it's like taking over like the means of communication. I mean, in Comoros, there there were actual violence. You know, people that the mercenaries would come into the islands and they actually murdered like one of the presidents. They did it a few times. But the other things that you see are, a lot of times in Africa stuff like ballot ballot stuffing, where you, there's some people are stuffing ballots, and also um, voter intimidation. Like they'll they'll have military where the people are supposed to go vote. So people, because I've heard stories where in like in, in other island of Anjouan, which is part of the Comoros, where there was a lot of military and people didn't want to go out to vote because they were they just weren't feeling safe around the votes. So I'm not really seeing too much of that right here going on over here. And I'm relieved when I'm, I'm hearing Josh talk, uh, 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 Joshua talk about it because I'm not seeing these things, but it is kind of like his maneuvering is kind of weird. And and thinking about the way Trump is, I'm thinking that like, what can he do? Uh, I don't see him him letting people take him out the, the the White House. Sometimes I'm thinking that he's gonna resign at some point and say like, they're trying to steal it. So I'm out of here, you know what I'm saying? So he can stay in control. I think that's more of like his personality. I'm not fired, that's Right, yeah. right. It's like, I'm out of here. You guys, you, you guys are not playing fair. Because I, I don't know, I don't just see him like getting walked out of there. Like he, he's not that type of guy. When has he ever admitted, he's failed at everything he's ever done yeah. and has never admitted it or not, you know, he's, and so I, I'm sure he's going to find a way to try to save face and be yeah. angry and, and which is danger. I mean, it, it is really dangerous to get 35% of the country fully entrenched in this narrative of a stolen election. I mean, the, the consequences well, of it are going to be... My concern is, I don't, I I mean, if you voted for Trump, it does not mean that you're a Trump supporter. If you voted for Trump, it does not mean that you buy into his rhetoric. And and same thing in 2016, 71, 2 million people voted for Trump, more than any other presidential candidate in history, except for Joe Biden. Um, That is concerning. But I I wouldn't say it's people who think that, you know, who will be inflamed and angry. Right. Maybe I overstated the amount of people, but he will, he will have a hardcore core of supporters. I don't know. We'll yeah. see how big it is. Let, let's, you know, I'm not sure how, how much the narrative will carry, but let's, let's, let's switch gears for a second. Um, this is like a weird self plug. So just kind of bear with it, but it was, I, I know folks love um, Fox news and, and their, their silliness because I, I think what's going on right now um, is Fox and the Republicans are trying to figure out what their brand is post Trump and how to do what they've done so well, but like, you know, now there's this whole queue for, there's just other forces at play. So I, I was asked to go on Fox News yesterday and I only do the news shows um, now uh, because it's just too crazy. So <laughs> on a Fox uh, News segment yesterday, I took on the idea uh, that AOC wants to cancel members of the GOP who have enabled Trump and played a key role in his administration. It's not a matter of cancel culture. It's a matter of holding people accountable to their conservative record and for preventing necessary progress for the people. So let's let's play the clip really quick. Um, the first part of the clip because uh, it, it, it's they're they're talking about a blacklist is what essentially they're saying that Hil- that that uh, not Hillary. So that's usually who they say that AOC wants to create a blacklist. Dorsey, can we play the first part? Is anyone archiving these Trump sycophants for when they try to downplay or deny their complicity in the future? I foresee decent probability of many deleted tweets, writings, photos in the future. Let's bring in Dimitri Konst, former Bernie Sanders national surrogate and former New York City public advocate candidate. Nomiki, good to see you. It doesn't seem to me that that AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, is looking for the unity that Joe Biden is calling for because she wants to cancel anybody who was working, ever worked in the Trump administration. Oh, and his supporters as well. Your thoughts on that? Well, I don't think that's exactly what she said. I think what she was trying to make a point of was this rehabilitation of folks. For instance, the Lincoln Project is a perfect example. The Lincoln Project was founded by a group of George W. Bush administration officials, people who led us to the Iraq War, people who fought Democrats their entire lives. But suddenly, as soon as you know Donald Trump was a little bit too far, they said, no, we're going to start an organization and literally raise tens of millions of dollars, almost a hundred million dollars off off of Democrats who want to defeat uh, Trump. And now they're going to use that money to rebuild the Republican Party, the Democratic money and the Democratic data. So I think what she's trying to do is make a point that these 
um, these political operatives like to rehabilitate th some, themselves and, and mm -hmm. look for their next shtick, their next gig, uh, as the tides go in a different direction. And, you know, really? they should be held accountable, at least in terms of their record. I don't mean canceling, but they should, it, you know, if, if they're going to run as Republicans, then be a Republican. Listen, if she's trying to make a point that those who are following her lead are not getting it because the Trump Accountability Project writes here the following, quoting here, remember what they did, talking about Trump supporters, we should not allow the following groups of people to profit from their experience. Those who elected him, that's 70 million people. Those who staffed his government, those who funded him, that's the Trump Accountability Project. Molly Hemingway, by the way, counters that by saying, I'd say rounding up 70 million Americans for political punishment is a bit ambitious. Sorry, uh, we'll get to that second part in a second because it gets a little bit crazier. The reason why I wanted to bring this up because I do think that there's a very real question about what happens to these folks. You know, Republicans are able to get away with distancing themselves from Trump, making a ton of money off of it, and then going right back to the party, using Trump's data, using the Democratic's data, and rebuilding. Where, where do we go from here? How are we gonna be able to hold them accountable uh, without having Fox News segments saying that we're calling for the rounding up of whatever they were trying to say? <laughs> Uh, Napoleon, I saw you shaking your head. What, what do you think? Well, I, I think she makes a good point, AOC, uh, to, to preempt what the, the, the next move that they're going to make, which is obvious. It's like they're going to need to be held accountable and wear it on their jacket moving forward. And people forget real fast. You know what I mean? And, and uh, I think it's our job uh, not to allow them to forget. Uh, and I think also the Democrats uh, did a poor job linking certain Republicans to Trump directly. And if they had done that, they, they, they would have kind of been irredeemable in that sense, where it's like mm -hmm. you're, you are a Trumpist. Mm -hmm. You can't you can't play back and forth and act brand new like you're somebody new now. Like you, you, you know what you were doing for that for, for, for that person or for that for that um, that philosophy. And you, you're going to try to jump ship now. So I, I think I think we need to keep reminding people who was doing what and when. Yeah, I mean, Josh, Joshua, you were an anti-war activist in, in the Bush years. And my God, the rehabilitation of Bush's image is just the perfect, it's, 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 it's like this should be the stamp in front of us at all times. If Democrats are mm -hmm. not willing to take on someone's record, their legacy for the long term, then what are we even doing? How do we, yeah. how do we make sure we don't make those mistakes this time? Well, I mean, if Biden, Biden's whole campaign message is that he wants to be a healer, and anyone who does group healing will tell you that accountability is integral to healing. And that, uh, and so, you know, Obama's choice to not prosecute the Bush administration um, and say, you know, we're going to look forward, not backwards on torture has had huge consequences for us not being able to reckon with uh, or repair uh, our culture. And I think the same thing is if, 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 the Biden administration is serious about healing, they will actually go after and not just prosecute the Trump administration, but do do what y'all are talking about, which is, um, you know, the opposite of what the Democratic Party has been doing, which is they, I mean, they've been actively rehabilitating these people from the beginning and distancing the GOP from Trump. So I also think it's funny in that clip. No, I, I just am always amazed at your uh, poise and patience when you go on Fox News, the way they talk about, you know, like cancel culture means anything yeah. now, right? <laughs> like making sure that people are not in positions of structural power who have actively harmed us. That's po called politics, right? <laughs> that's not like personal shaming to drive a regular person out of their work or free speech. Right. That's just politics. And it's so it's amazing the way the backflips that they'll do to justify um, being chameleons based yeah. on, you know, being able to, to shift their, their tone depending on the time. Well, I think it's really important for us to understand. And, and I, and I, and it's also my strategy when I go on Fox news too. Um, these are two things that go hand in hand. Don't let them define it for you. You have mm -hmm. to define it for them. And if they, you know, they defined Hillary Clinton for 30 years and Hillary didn't have her definition until frankly, ever in the campaign. They asked her a couple of days before the election, why are you running for president? And she couldn't answer the question. You've been running since you were 12 years old. You can't answer the question. So, you know, you have to know who you are. You have to do your message. You have to define it before they can define it for you. And if they are going to, you have to flip it back at them. So um, I, with that, I want to share the second part, which is just kind of funny more than anything. Um, but also like it does speak to a, a greater narrative, which the Democrats are... are are falling for. Can we play the second part of that clip, the Molly Hummingway part? 
but it is kind of on brand for a socialist, I guess. Oh my no, goodness. Me. Okay, first off, that's not what, what they said. Those who elected them, the operatives who elected him, who are going to move on to the- So Molly Hemingway, just to remind folks, was saying that uh, <laughs> it's, can we just flash it on screen? Sorry, sorry, Dorsey, just so we can see it. The beginning, can you just show the tweet? Yeah, so it says, I'd say rounding up 70 million Americans for political punishment is a bit ambitious, ambitious, meaning the people who voted for Trump. But it is kind of on brand for a socialist, I guess. Now we can play it just to let people know what we were But it is kind of on brand for a socialist, I guess. Oh my goodness. Okay, first off, that's not what what they said. Those who elected them, the operatives who elected him, who are going to move on to their next operation, their next political path, and scam a bunch of working class donors, Republican working class donors, Democratic working class donors, into their next thing. These are operatives they're talking about. And Molly, you know, with all due respect, you should be careful about rounding up. Donald Trump rounded up folks and kept them at the border and forced hysterectomies. So we have to remember exactly where we've been. And most recently, that is ICE concentration camps at the border. I got to go, but what do you make of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez threatening <laughs> right, to quit politics if she doesn't get her way, if more people don't? So they're going, if they're, oh, thank you, but if they're going right. to, if they're going to call us socialists, it'll be like, okay, you want to, you want to do the fears of Venezuela? We have to flash it back and say, your president did this. Don't you dare say we're, you, let's remind you who you were. And I feel like Democrats don't do that. Mm-hmm. Open well, it up. I mean, How do we do this? How do we, because they're going to do this from now on. It's like that you've got, you've got Jim Clyburn saying, you know, we can't be socialists. We can't be progressives. And, and I'm no one's more progressive than me, but he's also not in favor of Medicare for all. They're taking the red baiting. They're, they're partnering with the Republicans. They're partnering well, over the red baiting. I, I think that the problem with, with a lot of these mainstream big donor Democrats is, is it almost feels like they're trying to have, make friends. And then it's like that, that reach across the aisle type thing and, 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 and making friends. Republicans, the way they operate, they don't care about who likes them or not. They're like, we got voted in to, to push this agenda and that's what we're doing. And that, that's why I think like their voters and their base is strongly behind them. And, and Democrats, we feel a lot, a lot of people feel like when they vote, they, they feel betrayed a lot of times mm-hmm. because then they get into these positions like we got to be kind to them. We got to do this. And, you know, on some Feinstein type type thing when she she did with uh, Amy Comey Barrett. I think uh, we, we need to get people like AOC. We're not scared to, to, to really uh, say, say say what they feel and push the agenda and know what they're here for, what they were voted in for. Yep. I mean, what do you I think, think Josh? I, how do we take them? How do we uh, hold them accountable and, and stay true to our values and hold the Democrats? I mean, this is just. But I'm sorry, like, why are we in this moment? You, that's why I was saying concentration camps at the border. Are we seriously, are Democrats really talking about their fear of socialism and turning into Venezuela? What do you think we've been for the last four years? I mean, there, yeah, there's so many. Th- I, 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 I love how you took it apart piece by piece, but it started, remember, with them pivoting of, from talking about Republican operatives and then imagining that, you're talk- that we're talking about Republican people. Right. And so there's also a way that I think that we we can be specific with our critique where we're critiquing institutions and critiquing bad actors in a way that doesn't allow them to make it seem like we are making just like a broad like because the thing is what liberals frequently do is they do criticize Republican voters in the way that the culture war stuff emerges in the way that it's like insulting voters. And I think there's a way that we can talk about socialist politics in a way that is constantly focused on on the actual you know the ruling class who are controlling this and but it's going to require our message discipline to keep pivoting back to that like you did in the clip so um you know a lot of this conversation is very much about learning our lessons right how do we not make the mistakes of the the bush era how do we not make the mistakes of of falling for their you know their framing of of the narrative and you know stay true to our narrative um i really loved seeing Sunrise tweet this out. Um, <laughs> they, they, they put out on Instagram a photo of Robbie Mook. Uh, can we show that real quick? And I'll give you guys a little bit of background of who Robbie Mook was, is, was. <laughs> okay, so Robbie Mook uh, was Hillary Clinton's campaign manager in 2016. I believe he was also, uh, he used to have the DSCC, the Democratic Senate Campaign Committee. Uh, he was hired by Nancy Pelosi to run House Democrats PAC in 2020. But losers want to blame the Green New Deal for their losses, dot, dot, dot. Y'all, we're just trying to help. That's Sunrise Movement. So here's, 
this is like Robbie Mook is just like he is this guy should there should be a shirt like failing upward since since like 1982 you know I mean this is this is the problem with the Democratic Party how I started the show off which was it is a cesspool it's like circle jerking right they're all making money off of each other you make a little bit here i'll put you in charge of my pack i trust you you'll throw me my contracts because that's what he did was he threw he threw the democratic congressional packs money towards their favorite consultants how do we i mean do we need a truth and reconciliation committee for the <laughs> democrats like can I can I kick this off, Napoleon? Yes, go for it. Go. Yeah. I, I just want to like. <laughs> here's here's what's just like. I mean, call me naive, but the avoidance of responsibility is staggering. <laughs> like you know that they don't want to win because they don't think like organizers. If you are an organizer, you debrief everything you do, and you ask yourself what was within our control. And what do we need to change? What is our piece of the puzzle, right? You rigorously engage in feedback and reflection so that you can learn, improve, and change. It's called praxis. And so, like, you take responsibility for everything within your sphere of agency, and then you adapt. And the move to blaming other people, especially blaming people with less power than you, is a practice of unstrategy. It's a practice of disorganizing. It's it's not... it. it that's all I can, like, it's it's just clear that their mindsets are not actually about learning, growing, winning, changing, building a movement, anything like that, because it's not like you blaming other people <laughs> is not a way. That's just not what organizers do. It's, I mean, activists do <laughs> that. Activists activists, are, it's, that's actually very important. Activists <laughs> do that. Yeah. But also um, campaign folks are organizers, whether or not we want to call them that, like Robbie Mook should know better. And like, clearly Robbie Mook, is missing something in, in his analysis. Maybe he's, in 2016, it was all about the data that he was looking at. I don't know what it was about now, but I mean, first off, Napoleon, I <laughs> throw this out there. I would love to commission you to do a song about these like failed hacks. I don't know if you'd be able to do that. I just was like envisioning like, like we need to like have t-shirts with Robbie Mook's face. We need to have- As an like- anime character. Yeah, I, I wish I, I wish I knew more more of the names. Robbie Mook is the only one I'll I give them to you. I'll, I'll throw them out. I'll just say- Give me a whole list. I'll crack down on them. <laughs> I mean, it's first off, it's, it's it's too much money into these these elections, and 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 it, it makes people want to get into these positions as just a mere career move, and and it's it's just a money grab. It's like all they're doing is is is, is grabbing their money, and and like you said, divvy it it up with their friends, and uh, they're not producing results. That's cool when you when you when you're winning, but when you're proven to be inefficient. It's it's like you we gotta kick them out of there. We gotta kick them out of there. Some people doing the work. I I I, I was listening to some. Uh, I I don't know the names of these groups, but people in Georgia that were doing work on the ground floor, and I don't see people giving them credit. They're not the ones with the blue check marks on Twitter. The ones with the blue check marks on Twitter are the, are the consultants and everything like that. Should be people uh, from the ilk of Joshua and stuff that get the the blue check marks that get their voices platformed and everything. Really know what they're talking about. All these other people are just buying up TV ads and making money. I got to tell you, uh, the most dangerous thing I've ever experienced was calling out the consultant class um, immunity reform commission. It led to smears, death threats, uh, later articles written about me when I ran for office that were false um, lawsuits. And so when you go to the source, you look at any movement, Joshua, you know this so well, having studied you know, revolutions, essentially, if you start to target the money, they come for you. I think what's going to happen now, though, it's going to be very hard for them to play a game of whack-a-mole every single time somebody starts calling out the money, because it's just so abundantly clear that they're failing. Mm -hmm. Guys, I love you. I'm so appreciative. This is a very important show, uh, very cathartic in many ways. I have a ton of shout outs. Let me just go through the shout outs real quick. You guys are ready to, you're free to go. Appreciate you. We'll see you next week. Uh, all right. Who do we Appreciate have shout you outs both. to? Thank you. Matagiri, thanks for the love. I live in Norway. You jelly? A little bit. Yeah, actually. <laughs> Harris Alborn-Yoz, thanks for the love. Al Walski, keep on keeping on. I like your style. Waiting to hear your inside scoop on the Georgia Senate stuff. Uh, runoff, we'll be covering that. Kowalski from Nebraska, thanks to the 
catastrophic weather events globally. Uh, commodity prices are good. Have some and have some and money. Thanks for the informative content this har this harvest. Uh, I get it because of the uh, catastrophic weather. The harvest very smart. Should call. I don't have a call in. Should tweet in, and I'll talk about that a little bit more some other day. Uh, Chloe Kravitz, do those vines hurt Josh's walls? Oh man, he's gone. <laughs> do they hurt his walls? I don't know. S Black Mare, thanks for the love. We need Mitch McConnell to give up the idea of corporate immunity. Yes, and give to the states. The bill just needs some tweaking. UI and HC and get it done. Kowalski from Nebraska again. Wait, same one? No, that's the same one. Same, same comment, but much, much love. And special shout out to Professor Harvey K. And everyone in the live chat, thank you to Midi Doctors for working the algorithm. And huge, 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 huge thanks to our moderator, Chokin, for keeping the chat room honest. I will see you guys tomorrow. Thanks for being there, stay, staying engaged. We have a lot of work to do. And I can tell you right off the bat that our focus on the show is going to be about where we can make a difference, especially in the next few months, where we can make a difference, how we can make a difference as a movement, because we're dealing with a completely different landscape now than we have seen in a long time. Take care, be well, we'll see you tomorrow.